Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. Today, we'll be discussing the attack on Salman Rushdie and the Atlantic fumbling basic Catholicism. But first, I want to go to Mar-a-Lago. And I'm not the only person who went to Mar-a-Lago. Also, a whole bunch of FBI agents went to Mar-a-Lago in order to serve a search warrant on the home of former President Donald Trump. What we don't know about this right now greatly outnumbers the things that we do know about this. Uh, the, there was a press conference uh, late last week. This happened a week ago uh, on Monday when the raid was executed late in the day. News broke of it when uh, former President Trump posted on his uh, Truth Social website a statement about the uh, this search warrant being served. I'm going to purposely try to avoid using the term raid because I don't think that that is an accurate representation of what happened. But that is the nomenclature that has been regularly associated with this. But a search warrant was served on the former president's home. Uh Attorney General Merrick Garland had a brief press conference on Thursday of last week in order to really not say all of that much other than more or less you could distill it down to trust us, uh, which I think we'll get into why that's problematic messaging coming from – well, not just messaging, problematic uh, in general coming from the FBI and the Department of Justice. Uh, The search warrant itself has not been released. There have been rumblings about what motivated and brought this about and what may have been the subject of this search, as well as speculation on whether or not even what is enumerated in the search warrant, if we were to see it, whether that actually gets to what they were looking for. Andy McCarthy at National Review has speculated that no matter what is in the search warrant, they're really looking for stuff related to what the January 6th committee is investigating, uh, even if it just says that it's looking for documents that the president, uh, former president took uh, without proper authorization when he left the White House. But the part of this that I'm particularly interested in is how do we balance our concern for the rule of law and powerful figures like this when when there's going to be political implications and implications I think even beyond just general politics for carrying out these kinds of actions. There's a really good piece, short piece from Kevin Williamson at National Review where he took issue with people saying that this is unprecedented in the sense that search warrants are served very often in South Florida. Usually it's by the DEA and not by the FBI. But this is a reminder that Donald Trump is not the president anymore. He has left the White House. He is not an elected official. He retains some of the trappings of the presidency, such as 24-7 Secret Service protection. But he is John Q. Citizen. 
he is not the president of the United States anymore. And obviously, as we've seen from the reactions, uh, a lot of people on I think both sides of the political aisle are fit to be tied over what has happened here in different ways. As I think the partisan left is once again believing like with the Mueller probe that the walls are closing in on Donald Trump. And the result is that uh, a lot of people who might have been moving away from Trump, I think, have now moved a little bit closer out of a desire to defend the man. Um, So those implications uh, come – these results come from this action being taken. But because people will react this way, does it obviate a necessity to carry out the conduct of law enforcement if we think that there is a legitimate reason for – and again, we don't know because we don't know a lot about this at this point. But let's assume that there is a legitimate reason for executing a search warrant like this. Should the Department of Justice and law enforcement be more cautious because of the political implications? Or do we set all of that aside and just say the rule of law is more important? We carry that out no matter what. So this is uh, one of many instances where my mind immediately goes to uh, the economist Kenneth Boulding um, and his his work. He was also a peace activist and he did a general systems theorist. And so he talks about law in terms of a threat system. It exists by this relationship, do thing X or we will do bad thing Y, right? Um, Every society needs law. It's important. It's foundational. Um, It's not in itself bad. However, uh, the more a threat has to be carried out, uh, the more it undermines the threat system itself. Um, So if the FBI... Now, I should preface this by saying it's not as if the American people have an overwhelming trust in the FBI in the first place. So maybe they got nothing to lose. I don't know. I just um, wrote a piece for the Detroit News about this, that that very subject. Right. So, I mean, you know, depending on who you ask, the FBI is hiding aliens beneath uh, the Earth's surface somewhere and who knows what else. And um, so, OK, they're not really the, the most highly regarded organization in the first place, but they better really have something or at least have had very good reason um, and not just as you know some have speculated been using something as a pretense to look for other things or um, had really flimsy uh, basis uh, from which to act just to kind of get in there and snoop around. Um, that kind of thing will not be good. And it's not going to be limited to the FBI at all. Um, I think this will be very easily politicized. I mean, P.T. Barnum, I believe, uh, once said, any press is good press as long as they spell your name right. Um, And it's, you know, Donald Trump uh, has done a great job staying in the news. Um, I think there's there's been some silence, uh, you know, certainly since he's been off Twitter um, and uh, certain channels uh, he had, um, you know, were closed. Um, Certain attempts he made um, to maintain his image kind of backfired. He was promoting vaccination and his crowds were booing him um, in uh, 2021. Um, so there's there's been an opportunity for the country to move on. And, you know, intentionally or not, uh, the left or just anybody who doesn't like Donald Trump has kept this guy in the public spotlight to the point where there's no way you know, rightly, whether they have a basis or not, there's no way he's not going to, and he already has, say, clearly, I'm being targeted, I'm being unfairly attacked, this is a witch hunt, yada, yada, yada. Um, 
so I, you know, like you said, most mostly just a lot of unknowns. Um, so let's hope that that some of those are clarified. <laughs> but I think you're getting to the question that I find interesting here, which is is one thing to look at the standards of the Department of Justice and the FBI, law enforcement in general, and to say that you know, we really do want them to have something. Like we don't want them executing search warrants like this as a fishing expedition where they know they can find X, but they're really searching for Y and Z. And even though that's not named in the warrant, they know if they execute the warrant for X, they're likely to find the Y and Z that they're looking for. I think we can take issue with that absolutely. But the question is, should the rule – are the rules different and should the rules be different for people in powerful positions like Donald Trump? Even though as I pointed out from the Williamson piece, I agree with Kevin entirely. He is a private citizen. He is not the president of the United States anymore. But nonetheless, we treat – in the same way that we insist on people who are out of office still referring to them by the title that they had when they were in office, we regard them differently. And we're having this conversation, yes, because Donald Trump is a notable figure. But the implication there to me seems to be that the rules can and should be different for powerful people because it's an outrage when it's done to Donald Trump. But nobody is outraged when it is done to the average other person in South Florida when a search warrant is executed like this. Right. So I, I, I guess I have two responses. One is that we should be more outraged uh, at those kinds of searches, which do happen all the time. People get pulled over. Um, you know, cop says, oh, I think I think there might they might have pot in the car. You know, what? Well, I guess that's legal in most places now. But, you know, they might have something in the car. They find a reason for probable cause and then they start, get them out of the car, search the car. What, you know, and it's the sort of thing. It's like. Or even a more outrageous you know, example, stop and frisk in New York when that yeah, was happening. Right. So um, those things are bad, right? They're bad when they're done to the normal average citizen. They're bad when they're done to former presidents. Um, so I think that's fine. Um, but I do think uh, it's one thing to say uh, the same rules apply to Donald Trump and same laws. I absolutely think we have to affirm that for the sake of rule of law. Um, but that doesn't mean that you just check uh, prudence at the door. Um, he is obviously in a different situation than the average citizen. If the FBI raided my home, I wouldn't be thinking, all right, time to make my 2024 run, right? There, there's no way I can spin that in a way that's going to benefit me. I'm just going to hope, you know, that, that everything turns out fine and uh, I still have a career afterwards. So, there's a difference. There's just a real sociological difference that needs to be taken into account. That doesn't mean that you don't enforce the law, but you have to do so prudently. You have to say, we know who this person is. We know what the headlines are going to be. We know what the social media reaction is going to be. So how are we going to plan for that ahead of time? And once again, we don't know uh, if the FBI has thought through those things, but I certainly hope they have. There is a very real way in which you never stop being president. Um and what came to mind as, as people were discussing these issues was, uh, was Richard Nixon. Um, we had, you know, in many ways, this situation is unprecedented in that Donald Trump did not attend the inauguration. Donald Trump has not conceded the election. Um, and this has made it very, very hard for him to transition into the normal life of an ex-president. And the last president who had these sorts of difficulties was Richard Nixon, who um, 
<clears throat> after his resignation uh, was sort of persona non grata in the White House. Um, this was famously ended with a diplomatic mission of Deng Xiaoping to uh, the, the new, at that time, Carter White House. And Deng Xiaoping had asked that Richard Nixon be present because of Richard Nixon's um, <clears throat> opening of dialogue between the Only United Nixon States go and to China. China. Yep. And uh, the Carter White House had initially refused. And Deng Xiaoping had said, basically, I will visit Richard Nixon's private offices afterwards. And... Rightly, I think the Carter administration decided rather than rather than, you know, having this situation where you have foreign dignitaries visiting the shadow president um, invited him to that dinner, um, which he then participated in. And then he resumed the sort of normal life one has as an ex-president of being invited to these sort of diplomatic functions, returning to the White House. Donald Trump has not made that path accessible. He is not. Um, and as a result, the sort of thing that maybe in a different world had things happened differently if there were a question of documents that were taken out of the White House could be approached privately. And a sort of orderly return of documents or discussion of what was take, taken could take place doesn't seem – likely to have happened. And as a, res as a response, this threat system emerges because there is not that collegiality that has existed in the past between former presidents and current presidents. Um, I think that, you know, again, we don't know exactly what was sought, exactly what was found. Um, and I think this will be incredibly damaging if you know, there isn't a, a, a sort of smoking gun to a crime associated. Even if there's an improper removal of documents, to have this sort of, this sort of event unfold with a former president who has refused to concede an election, who is very much politically involved, um, is a very dangerous thing for the country. I think we're getting into these is-ought distinctions. I, I agree with you that – you never stop being president. Uh, e even for people who have largely disappeared from the public scene, you know, the year is immediately following George W. Bush's presidency. He was not uh, often to be seen. He was not at uh, Republican National Committee, the, the, the conventions. Uh, he was not really a prominent part of the party and, and understandably so for political reasons. He exited the White House with an approval rating in the 20s. Uh, not surprising that he's not actively involved, but we do see him uh, again reemerging both through you know his his art, the book that he published uh, about um, immigration, these portraits of immigrants that he had painted. I, so I agree with you in the is part of it, but I'm curious about the ought part of it. Is that healthy for us to continue to treat these people as you know? perpetual presidents of the United States after they have left office. I think one can compellingly argue that it is a departure from how the founders would have viewed that office. I've always liked Stephen Hayward's pointing out that we probably pronounced the word wrong. It should be president rather than president. Because 
they are to preside over the executive branch of the government. They, they are the head of one third of the federal government. So I think this points to some bigger issue concerns with how we view the presidency now. But if we just try to drill it down to this particular question, I guess what I'm, I'm still struggling with is to what extent – and let's presume here and going back to what Dylan said, I agree entirely. There is plenty of reason to be skeptical of the FBI. One need not even go back to things like Waco in the 90s or the long legacy of J. Edgar Hoover as likely uh, the most powerful unelected person in federal government for almost the entirety of his reign at the head of the FBI, a man who had dirt on just about everybody and had thus leverage on just about everybody in public life. One need only go back to the investigation of the Trump campaign uh, that took place during President, uh, President Trump's administration that largely produced nothing and in fact exposed a kind of icky incestuousness amongst uh, top FBI agents who were charged with all of this and, and what we was, was revealed in text messages between certain agents and the way they talked about this, having you know basically a backup plan because they didn't want to see this man in office. So there's problems with the FBI and there's problems with politicization within the FBI and there's always been problems with the way that the FBI has been used politically. Take all of set all of that aside for a moment. Should politics be a primary consideration in a decision like this? Assume for a moment here that they do have truly just cause to be searching Mar-a-Lago. Should they hesitate at that? Should they not do it because the kind of political fallout that we're seeing now is occurring? Should justice be done though the heavens may fall or do we take these practical political considerations into account when deciding whether to proceed? I think you have to take them into account. That doesn't mean that you don't do it, but you just better be really sure uh, or you better have a really good basis for doing it. You better you know, double check, you know, um, perhaps in a way, as much as I wish they would for average citizens, maybe a level beyond um, what you would typically do. Um, to get back to your, your first point, though, I don't know that presidents have always just been presidents. They've always been they've always had a figurehead sort of role uh, in the nation's history as well. I mean, we you know, it probably was a lesser role if you go back far enough. But on the other hand, we call all these people founding fathers. We put their, you know, portraits on our money. Like, you know, there, there, there has always been this kind of public figure role of the presidency from the very beginning um, to the point where that doesn't just go away when somebody steps out of office. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that you can really get away from that aspect of it. Um, even, you know, in an ideal world where uh, we don't obsess over the presidency in the way that we do now, we don't obsess over national elections, federal, you know, positions as we do now. Um, I still think you're going to have that. It's the president of the United States is the most famous person in the entire world. Like they are the biggest celebrity ever. <laughs> you know, um, that's not their primary are role. Bigger, are they but, bigger than Kim Kardashian? Um I mean, I think so. I think there's places in the world where people know who Donald Trump is but don't know who Kim Kardashian is. Um, now, 
in part because Donald Trump was also on TV in his own reality show, but but also because he was president of the United States. Um, that absolutely matters. Or maybe more to the point, there are people who know who Joe Biden is and don't know who Kim Kardashian is. And Joe Biden has not had a reality show, thank God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that so that aspect I just don't think you can get away from. And in the execution of law, you have, you know, just like anything in life, you have to deal with reality as it is, not as you wish it were. Um, you should execute the law justly and impartially, but you also need to respect reality for how it is and need to know that part of law is keeping order in society. And if what if executing the law is probably going to bring on some level of disorder, you better have that, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, that payoff. You better have, you know, the big smoking gun uh, sort of uh, you know, result to to all of this, or at the very least, you better be able to show that you really dotted your eyes, crossed your T's. You had every reason to believe that you were going to go in there and find, you know, a real skeleton in the closet or whatever the the case may be um, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, otherwise, uh, I you know, I don't think that you you unleash the FBI for anything less, right? If if you're like, oh, Donald Trump, you know, he stole. Uh, some towels from the White House, like that's something that you know you you send a cop to nicely, you know, knock on the door and say, "Hey, could you return those towels?" And you know, you you don't send the FBI, right? So there, there's a there's a level uh, of of force involved here, which needs to be met with a commensurate uh, basis. Um, otherwise, people are not going to accept the legitimacy of the action, whether it is or not. And part of the problem here is that there's been a sort of lack of transparency. And not only is, you know, hours after, which may be understandable, but we're now talking about something that happened last week and we're talking around it because we don't know exactly what was being searched for, whether it was found, and in a political environment, when many people are paranoid, many people have sort of conspiratorial thoughts already, this adds to that. Um, in an ideal world, our presidents are, as George Washington you know, tried to model himself over, uh, like Cincinnatus. They return to the farm. They return to private life. Um, and they... Um, just take up the mantle of being an ordinary citizen. Um, that would be a wonderful world to live in and one that we should strive for. But in sort of the modern media age, I mean, we think about president, former presidents, let's say, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter is often thought of as a, as a president who perhaps his career after the presidency is even better than his presidency because he chose to focus on charitable works, working with Habitat for Humanity, that sort of thing. Um, you have, uh, you know, as George W. Bush was brought up as sort of, you know, uh, you know, finding new creative outlets. Barack Obama famously uh, signed a Netflix deal. Um, for good or for ill, it seems that the rule is not a return to that private life now. And, and perhaps 
that is something that we should we should look forward to and that perhaps you know president biden could model at the end of his presidency because this celebrity culture creates in this higher visibility even when it's used for good can create these sort of conflicts so one of the issues that i think is interesting here is this question of transparency or at least question of what we know and when it is appropriate to break from protocols. So uh, reference a piece here from uh, the dispatch by David French in which he makes a good point about his podcast colleague, Sarah Isger, who used to be a spokesperson for the Department of Justice. So somebody with knowledge of the operations of the Department of Justice. So here's, here's from David's piece. Uh, The key relevant documents are the warrant application and the search warrant itself. The DOJ does not release warrant applications or warrants in ongoing investigations. There are generally quite good reasons for this. Releasing such information immediately places a cloud of suspicion over private citizens who haven't even been charged for a crime, much less convicted. It is true that the FBI departed from standard protocols when it investigated Hillary Clinton. The famous James Comey press conference detailing both Hillary Clinton's mishandling of classified information and the FBI's decision not to recommend charges and the Comey letter announcing the reopening of the investigation weeks before the election were well outside the norm. One can both understand why Comey did what he did and see the obvious consequences. There's good evidence that the Comey letter is a key reason Clinton lost the election. The DOJ should stick to protocol, but it's worth noting that protocol includes handing the Trump team a copy of the search warrant itself. It doesn't contain as much information as the warrant application, but it does identify the key criminal statutes at at issue and the items sought to be searched or seized. Trump can choose to release that document at any time. Includes a tweet from Sarah Isger. Just a reminder, Trump has a copy of the warrant, which will include what they search for and what crimes they believe were broken. Uh, He can release it whenever he wants. I've also heard Sarah make the point that it is in those moments that you think are exceptional that you want to make exceptions to the protocols, to the rules, that you should remember that they exist for a reason. So the ideal here would not be to have a repeat of what James Comey did. It would be for Merrick Garland to do what he has done, which is it is generally policy of the FBI and the Department of Justice to not comment on ongoing investigations, really nor to ever disclose if investigations end. That is just their policy. We can have a separate conversation on the wisdom of that, but it sh- shouldn't it be desirous for us for them to follow their protocol, even if it comes at the expense of the kind of transparency here that would, I agree, be enlightening to this entire conversation. But at minimum, Sarah's point is a very good one. Trump has the ability to provide that clarity. So far, he has said he does not want to. He has rejected what Merrick Garland was asking for uh, in that press conference he gave on Thursday, which is that they would ask the judge to reveal some of the limited information about the search warrant. And Trump said, no, I don't want that info out there. Yeah, I mean, that's fairly typical. You know, this is 
not uh, our former president's first uh, legal troubles. Uh, so a very, very much uh, on precedent in terms of any of his, you know, anytime he's gotten sued or whatever. It is you worth, know. It is worth um, noting that very shortly after the search warrant was executed, he was to be deposed in a civil suit in New York at which he pled the fifth mm-hmm. and did actually release a very good statement saying that he had previously said that, you only plead the fifth if you're guilty of something. And now I understand why you plead the fifth. And I I actually take him quite at his word on that, that he realizes, yeah, they really could be just coming after you. Sure. So, yeah. And, but just in general, he doesn't, you know, non-disclosure agreements, things like that. Like he, he's not one to, you know, the, the, a, there's like a whole gossip press that's going to get a hold of whatever they can anyway, but he, he's not one to just give it out in that way. At least not as far as I've seen. Um, and, you know, it's, I don't know. Um, so I look at it, I think it's it's a good thing to follow the precedent. I think, um, well, Donald Trump made sure they would move beyond James Comey, uh, for better or worse. Uh, and Comey was, did not instill me with the m- most amount of confidence in the competence of uh, the FBI or deep state in general. And I think that is one of many examples is the handling of the investigation of Hillary Clinton. Um, Does Merrick Garland instill you with that confidence? I mean, he's a little better so far uh, for the reasons you mentioned. Um, Yeah, you have rules that that allows you to say, look, we're just following the rules. In fact, that is, you know, one of the best things they can do um, throughout all of this is stick to the rules and, Tell people you're sticking to the rules and tell them what the rules are um, instead of saying, oh, we're going to get that guy or, you know, or whatever, um, or we know he's hiding something, yada, yada, yada. You just say, no, these are the rules. We had to do this. We knew there were consequences. We knew that there would be a public backlash, um, but we're just following the rules, guy. You know, the, the more you can say that legitimately, I think the better this will go, whatever the outcome. I think you run the risk Because rules can be used against institutions to undermine institutions. And I think in this case that this is what President Trump is doing. Perhaps President Trump has not done anything wrong, but from where he stands, the case is stronger there the less information there is. The less information that is out there the more speculation can run rampant and that undermines faith in the institutions themselves. As Eric described, there is no if, – if this, if this investigation is ongoing, there is no reason to ever release it. Do you want this hanging over a 2024 presidential campaign in which President Trump is running? in which none of this is disclosed and he can make any allegations he wishes and the Justice Department is not responding. Um, I think that that's a very dangerous thing. And again, I am not certain of what the warrant is, what its merits are, but I don't see this sort of following procedure This does not instill confidence. This undermines confidence with the personalities in play right now. I want to wrap it up here with something I think piggybacks off of what Dan was saying. And I I do want to point out that 
Dan is also engaging in the thing that drives me crazy in referring to the man as President Trump. He's not the president of the United States anymore. He is Donald Trump. He is, you know, the the CEO of Trump Enterprises or whatever the name of the company is. Uh, but nonetheless, I will I will let that go for now. But you're hinting at something that was kind of the center point of the piece that I wrote for Detroit News, which is not published yet, so I can't include it in the show notes. But we will; uh, it'll be up on Acton.org shortly after it appears in the Detroit News. This is not the first time that high-ranking officials in the federal government have been criminally investigated. And the example that I use in the piece is in 1972, Vice President Spiro Agnew was being investigated for from when he was the Baltimore County executive, taking kickbacks from contractors and including even receiving those bribes while he was in the White House well after the fact, including someone who was ready to testify that they met Agnew in the White House and gave him $10,000 in cash. They, as this investigation proceeded, it got to the point where Agnew uh, agreed to uh, a plea deal in which he pled guilty to one count of income tax evasion and agreed to resign from the vice presidency. And of course, Grant Rapids' own Gerald Ford then becomes uh, the only man never to be elected as vice president or president of the United States, partly as a result of this. I think it's safe to say that the kind of results that we saw there, including the clear need for him to resign and the way that this process played out, was in part because, by and large, there was trust in the agencies working on this and in the process. I think it's fair to say that that kind of trust does not exist now. This is where I go back to my Yuval Levin point about the uh, crumbling, the erosion of faith in institutions and as a result, I think people are more want to be speculating on what is going on here in the absence of information rather than to have the assumption, which I think would be desirous, that they are acting in good faith and that they are doing the right thing. But there's, of course, plenty of evidence to po- point to in recent history as well as throughout the history of the FBI and the recent history of the Department of Justice that would undermine that faith. It, it is that lack of faith that is driving – Again, the partisan split on this were once again another institution that is determined to ruin anybody's faith and confidence in it. The media, once again, people are saying the walls are closing in on President Trump and this is the moment where, you know, they're finally going to get him and he's going to be frog marched out of Mar-a-Lago. And the other side is portraying it as just an absolute unconscionable assault on you know Donald Trump himself, but also on the American system, questioning the legitimacy of the regime, uh, which you know, one that, that word is used a little interchangeably now, sometimes just to mean the Biden administration, but I, I think more properly to identify the American system of government and to question the sustainability and the the status of the American system of government right now it was largely a a result, I think, of this crumbling faith in institutions that nobody, this is what you get when nobody trusts anybody else on anything. This is what a low trust society looks like, and it's not pleasant, and we should get about the work of trying to build a higher trust society. 
Let's move on to our next topic. So on Friday, the author Salman Rushdie was uh, speaking at a conference in New York, a man rushed the stage, uh, repeatedly stabbing him, stabbing him 17 times. Uh, Salman Rushdie, of course, rushed to the hospital. Uh, he has been since removed from a ventilator. Uh, he had some nerves severed in his arm. His liver uh, was stabbed. Uh, he is likely to lose an eye, according to his agent. Uh, but he does look to be on the road to recovery, thankfully. So that is good news. I was a bit amused by the phrasing of some of the commentary on this, where there are numerous news outlets, again, to bang on about the problems in the media for a moment, wondering, you know, still searching for a motive in all of this. Are we really? Are we really still waiting to find out what motivated this? Of course, Salman Rushdie, after the publication of The Satanic Verses, has a fatwa against him issued by the uh, then Ayatollah Khomeini, then leader of uh, the nation of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, he has been under with uh, traveling with security basically ever since. There have been pre uh, numerous previous attempts on his life, all of which until this point have failed to really get all that close to him. But one included even a bomb going off uh, in a hotel in London where he was supposed to speak that went off early, uh, not while he was there. So we're really not wondering why this happened, despite the public baffling speculation by some people who I think just don't want to acknowledge what is plainly obvious to us. Uh, what, what is the significance of this to you? So it's important to realize the fatwa also comes with a reward, a standing reward. This is a bounty. Um, this is... Along with the attempts on Rushdie's life previously, we have had translators of this work into different languages who have been killed, who have been assaulted. Um, this is and, – and the Iranian regime uh, responded uh, this morning saying uh, this was uh, – saying uh, we in the – Incident of the attack on Salman Rushdie in the United States do not consider that anyone deserves blame and accusations except him and his supporters. And this was a spokesman from Iran's foreign ministry. So there is certainly no love lost here. And they are certainly uh, pleased at this development. Um, I think the notion that this is anything but related to that is ludicrous. Um and I think it's fundamentally unserious. Um, this is another thing where I think folks, you know, where s journalistic standards can be weaponized, uh, where the standards of, you know, we don't have a confession from the attacker in which he says, yes, this is why I did it. Um, we don't even have a sort of if I did it, this is why it would be. However, I don't I think I think it is. Uh, it undermines the, serious of the seriousness of the situation, the ongoing seriousness. This fatwa still exists. Salman Rushdie is still alive. This is still very much a threat to his life. Um, and I think the unseriousness uh, in here is, is, is revealed in the abuse 
of professional standards to avoid calling out what this very clearly is, which is an act of terrorism and violence that is state-sponsored, supported, and sanctioned. Uh, it makes me think about uh, the difference between, um, you know, the sort of religious uh, theocratic uh, state that you have in Iran um, and, you know, Western notions or really historic notions, uh, classical notions of religious liberty. Um, and free speech. Sure. Yes. Free speech as well. Um, you know, on the one hand, this the fatwa is a continual threat on Salman Rushdie's life, but it is a continual threat on Salman Rushdie's life because Iran thinks Salman Rushdie's life is a continual threat to Islam. Um, we've we know many Muslims, uh, you know, in our network uh, who would find that ridiculous, uh, who believe in liberty, who believe that you know God doesn't need the help of the sword, um, and. You know, as from a Christian point of view, I think of, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul in Romans says that the gospel is the power of God. You know, Christ needs no help from Caesar. Um, and there is this profound, amazing international insecurity that this just lays bare, whether successful or unsuccessful. And thank God so far, unsuccessful, it seems like he's going to survive. Um it is interesting to me, you know, we just talked about a little bit legitimacy and threat systems and all that. Um, same thing applies here. Um, I think this undermines, um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure there are people, uh, perhaps even, you know, people uh, uh, of Persian descent uh, who believe that just this just shows the illegitimacy of the claims of uh, Iran. Um, and of their, you know, theocratic state and claims um, that, you know, how can you say you have faith if you also need to force people by the point of the sword or by, you know, the tip of a gun? Um, where's your faith in God? Um, and so that's what I think of when I, I see this. It's, it's tragic. I, I certainly hope he pulls through. Um, and frankly, I really hope uh, that someone... Um, being a Christian, I certainly uh, would hope a Christian, is able to give him a better witness of true faith uh, because everything that happens here, it, to me, is not an example of faith gone wrong. It is an example of a lack of faith, fundamentally. Um, to be afraid of religious liberty is not to have faith in God. This conversation has made me think of a piece that we published in late July by one of our former emerging leader interns here at the Acton Institute, uh, Farah Adid, who made an argument about blasphemy laws in Pakistan, uh, it, opposing the repeal of blasphemy laws in Pakistan under the argument that uh, essentially while religious freedom is the ultimate goal in Pakistan and other Muslim-majority countries, singling out blasphemy laws as the problem will only impede the spread of democracy and usher in an unintended violent backlash. Uh, so this is a very prudential argument mm -hmm. against the repeal of blasphemy laws like that. But I'm, I'm curious uh, in the context of, of what we've all just said here about the attack on Salman Rushdie, uh, what you make of an argument like that, that 
certainly these the institution of these blasphemy laws and the kinds of punishments that come with them uh, run uh, at least up against the uh, kind of notions that you were talking so about. Tomorrow. One thing that Farah points out in that article is that um, basically the punishments are not generally carried out um, by the by the the state, um, and so his point is. Um, it's bad enough that you have mobs trying to carry out these punishments anyway. It would get worse if you took these laws off the books. So his point is not, you know, I don't, I don't think it quite applies to to the situation with Salman, Salman Rushdie. Um, I don't think there is, you know, a a prudential defense of a fatwa on the man's life, um, and I don't think he would make one. Uh, our, our no, that's uh, leader. Um, that's not the argument I was uh, I was making in connection with this. Obviously, when pointing to the idea that these uh, blasphemy, of course, being the the charge against Rushdie and yes. the resulting fatwa against him, it, in wanting to move towards a a system, I don't think of the Iranian, here we'll properly use the term regime, uh, is going to evolve towards a place of democracy or the minimization of blasphemy laws. Um, but I, I was more curious on the juxtaposition of you know this idea of I think in a way it goes back to the previous conversation, right? So the how much do we take these kinds of prudential political concerns into questions about uh, the rule of law you know that this is a law that exists there and the argument for a repealing bad, it a bad law is no law right a, a law that violates natural law is no law at all um, I think that's the, the direction you go. Um, it's one thing to say a former president may have stolen some stuff he shouldn't have had or whatever the the charge is. Um, there's a law that was broken that is fine. Do not steal <laughs> is is a, a matter of natural law, not to mention the Ten Commandments. Um, do not write some scandalous poetry is not. Um, uh, now, people might disagree. Um, that's a conversation uh, that people can have. Um, but I still think uh, that was the way that I would uh, parse it out. Um, and I, I do think it, it still comes back to um th- this very strange in this case it's it's tied to religion it's not just law um and it really evidences a profound insecurity and lack of faith well it's also the combination here of religion law and state power one of the reasons and, and Faraz's piece is a fascinating piece and i would recommend people read it we'll it put does, it in the show it notes. does one of the things and, th- and this is something that maybe the West does have to grapple with in a unique way with um, you have um, – we had a recent uh, shooting in the United States that was uh, – I was, believe it was an Afghan um, uh, 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 quadruple homicide that had to do with um, sort of religious disagreements and – one of the reasons that Farah points to these laws is that you it's a very real reality in many parts of the world that there is interreligious communal violence that is not state-sanctioned, but that erupts periodically and which has devastating consequences. You see this very routinely in India between Hindu and Muslim communities there. 
So there is a sort of prudential reason why you would want to, in certain contexts, channel this into a sort of legal realm um, and take this outside of the realm of private vengeance. The question is, in societies, in Western societies, where this isn't commonplace, when this is, you know, these are isolated tragedies, should these hard cases determine our laws. And I think in that case, hard cases don't determine. In a, in a context, in a society in which there is an immensely, a, a large amount of interreligious communal violence, different prudential approaches might be warranted. Those are still very much horrific outliers in the West and I don't believe we should fundamentally restructure our system of law to accommodate these very extraordinary situations. So to your point, Eric, and to complicate my own dovetail on that, um, it is worth pointing out that, of course, uh, a prohibition against blasphemy is also part of the Ten Commandments. Um, traditionally, uh, Christians and others have distinguish between a first and second tables of the Ten Commandments. But if you look at certainly the Old Testament, uh, you know, the Sabbath breaker is is stoned. Uh, you know, there are enforcements of these things um, given a current context and time and, uh, and yeah, uh, the culture of, of the era. Um, but that doesn't mean that's ideal, right? Um, and that doesn't mean that that reflects uh, the current context. Um, you can take the principle. And so I want to be clear that, like, I understand there are people uh, that think, you know, blasphemy is a serious issue. It is. It's a sin. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's the state's role to enforce that. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, again, you know, God needs help. Uh, the state needs to be active in cases where wrongdoing is upsetting the peace. Um, that is why things like do not steal do fall under uh, the state uh, in, in civil law in a way that blasphemy laws should not. Let's move to our final topic. And in this sense, I think maybe carry on what has gone on in a little bit in this podcast so far, uh, which is a little bashing on the media. In, in one of my favorite podcasts, The Fifth Column, this would probably be recognized under the uh, segment they used to do at the end of the show called Some Idiot Wrote This, uh, with all apologies to the gentleman who wrote this, who I don't know anything about. There's a piece in The Atlantic under the headline, as of now, How Extremist Gun Culture Co-opted the Rosary. And the article image associated with it is a picture of a rosary from Getty Images. This is not how it originally appeared, however. In its original form, the headline was How the Rosary Became an Extremist Symbol. And the teaser of this piece reads, The AR-15 is a sacred object among Christian nationalists. Now, quote, radical traditional Catholics are bringing a sacrament of their own to the movement. Uh, as Jerry Dunleavy on Twitter pointed out, I'd like to note, yes, that famous Catholic sacrament, the rosary. However, the article image uh, displayed with this in the original publication of the article was an animated GIF of 
bullet holes being shot in the white paper or the white uh, pixels that appear on your screen in the general shape of a rosary, although I will note that the uh, small beads in between the larger ones, there were only five. Of course, there should be ten. Which brings me to my general question about this. Uh, and if anybody wants to jump in on the substance of the piece itself, feel free to do so. I don't think it really merits all of that much conversation, but I'm, I'm happy to go down that road. But just from the imagery question here, that original title, that subhead that includes referring to the rosary as a sacrament, how – much of how much ill effect is there out there from the fact that it's obvious to me that very there are very few people of faith or who understand religion that work at publications like this so there is nobody in the editorial process available to raise some red flags about things that they were getting wrong and in a way the tying of this into gun culture is a bit funny because that is another clear example. If you read a lot of the coverage of gun issues, it is so painfully obvious if you know even a little bit about firearms, how little the people who are writers about this and particularly and surprisingly are activists on this issue know about these objects that they are talking about. You know, people referring to what are, uh, semi-automatic weapons as automatic weapons, which is a important distinction that they are getting entirely wrong. I think the same thing is happening here where it's just obvious to me there is no one at the Atlantic or at least nobody involved in the process of bringing this piece from pitch to publication who knows all that much about religion in general or about the Catholic Church to be able to flag some of this stuff and say, uh, maybe we should temper this a little bit. It is bad on purpose to make you click. This has long been my my statement. There are many fine religion reporters across the nation that you could employ, that you could have. Uh, I'm not sure if she currently works with The Atlantic, but Emma Green used to work for The Atlantic and is is very knowledgeable about these sorts of things. This individual is just simply noted as being a writer from Toronto. I don't know what his day job is. I tried doing some Googling to see if I could find anything about this person. And frankly, I could not find much of anything. Even his Twitter account is his tweets are protected and his bio on Twitter does not reveal any more information about who he is, where he comes from, what his interests are. It, it is a bit of a mystery and probably, as you point out, on purpose. There's very strange to just give people a sample of, uh, you know, this is at the end of the first paragraph. These armed radical traditionalists have taken up a spiritual notion that the rosary can be a weapon in the fight against evil and turned it into something dangerously literal. The assumption being that prayer is not efficacious, that it literally does not work. And what they are just, just from the very ground of this thing, there's discussion of the language of the church militant, which he clearly does not understand. Um, and, you know, there is, um, there is one citation of a Catholic uh, theologian and historian, but every other reference is to 
Twitter memes generated by uh, sort of uh, extremist folks, probably many of them in jest. Um, and it just portrays a fundamental lack of seriousness. And you see this again and again with things framed around this notion of Christian nationalism, which is in a sense a real historical phenomena, but if it's a real historical phenomena, it applies to Frederick Douglass, to Abraham Lincoln, to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as well as sort of modern figure, some modern figures on the right. Um, none of this understanding is betrayed. There's no serious analysis of this. This is just something to make folks who do not know religious people terrified of them. Um, and it's a sort of base level fear mongering and hysteria that, uh, it's, it's unfortunately, uh, too common in the mainstream press. Your point about the lack of a belief in the efficaciousness of prayer, I think, again, ties back to the other element of this piece, which is, you know, talking about the AR-15 and firearms. So often you hear in the reaction to these terrible incidents of mass shooting, the mocking of people who offer thoughts and prayers. And on one hand, if I'm being uh, if I'm steel manning that or if I'm being charitable to the point that I think they're trying to drive at is their belief that a lot of people offer that and that alone and then do not want to do anything from a public policy point of view. And without going down the rabbit hole of what may be efficacious from a public policy point of view, uh, it, totally excusing going down that road at all by offering thoughts and prayers, uh, fair enough. But so often it is being – I view it as being mocked. Because they think not that these are people who are offering prayers because they believe prayer is efficacious and is uh, appropriate in this sense. It is because the people who are mocking it do not believe that prayer works at all. They do not believe it's a real thing. They do not believe God is real. And as a result, the only conclusion that they can make is that these people want to do nothing about it. Yeah, so I immediately thought of uh, um, the – I guess it's a blog uh, called Get Religion. Um, Terry Mattingly and uh, some other good religion reporters uh, are involved in that. And, I mean, every day you can go there and there's a post about some article. And either it's something like this where they've completely mishandled a religious element to a story. Or it's that they report on something and completely miss the religious element. So there's there's this weird sort of like ghost of the in the story of like why would some you know so so actually an example would be the last story that we just talked about. Why would someone try to kill Salman Ruf- Rushdie? Yes, right. There's religious motivation there. Um, that should be part of the story. That's a reality. Um, this is kind of the opposite direction of I you know you look at this. These things are real that the person is talking about in, in some sense. They're not using the right terminology. They're not interpreting some things properly. But there are extremists, right-wing extremists, uh, who combine a certain Christian piety with a certain um, enthusiasm uh, for Second Amendment and gun culture. I'm sure these memes are real. They have, you know, they link to their sources, Um whether in jest or not, I think they're in bad taste personally. Um, and I, there's 
many reasons why I think one could make a case. But this article makes no case whatsoever. And this is just a broader problem, I think, with reporting and I think even just with uh, civil discourse. So we have fact checkers in America. And, you know, without getting into the question of, you know, to the extent those have been compromised by partisan interests, I think they're generally a decent thing. You know, politicians make a speech, you go to the fact checker website and you say, okay, you know, this is only half true, whatever. You know, facts can be disputed. It's not quite that simple, but it still can be a useful tool. One thing we don't have that we desperately need are logic checkers, because you can't make an argument out of a collection of facts. And that's all this article is. It doesn't even quote any of these people at all. These people make statements. They have beliefs. Go to one of their blogs, detail one of the things they've said, and actually analyze what are they saying? Why are they saying? What's the point of it all? None of that's here. So there might be a story that could even be told, despite the terrible wording and framing and clear religious illiteracy involved. Um, do some reporting, some investigation, read something <laughs> and convey it in a way that helps people understand, well, who are these people? Where are they coming from? What are they motivated by? And how should people who are unfamiliar with this culture uh, understand it. That would be interesting. That would be a genuine public service. Uh, that is not what this article is. Yeah, you have, you have a sort of cottage industry now of folks who write this sort of thing, who turn this sort of thing into books, even sort of like thinly veiled academic-ish books, pop books, to largely feed a class of people who are terrified of what they see on the right. They see it as vaguely religious and will literally accept any meat thrown on those bones. And it is a very sad sort of state of affairs that there's a market for peep for ammunition for people to uh, devalue and dismiss folks that they don't understand, rather than okay, you see something in the world you don't understand, talk to those people, begin a dialogue, get some understanding, encounter the best representatives, rather than skimming Twitter for the most provocative things you can find, stringing those things together and then selling it to a gullible public. You reminded me of, uh, I think, an example of the type of book that you were talking about. I'll give you the, the subtitle of the book first and then the title, because I think that kind of helps illustrate the point here. The subtitle is The Christian Right and the War on America. And it comes under the very unsubtle title, American Fascists which displays neither an understanding of uh, the American religious right nor fascism. Uh, but never mind, I'll set aside Christopher Hedges uh, for the rest of this uh, episode, which will end almost immediately, but not without me pointing out that I think similarly to a suggestion I've heard and I largely agree with that every public policy discussion, every conversation on public policy issues that goes on should have at least one libertarian in the room, the point of which is to ask the question, why should we do anything at all? 
is that you should start from at first answering the question in the affirmative that this, the government, the state should do something before proceeding down that road and not leaving that premise unchecked. Similarly, as Dan pointed out, a recommendation for free to publications out there, and I largely think Dan is correct that it's bad on purpose to get people to click, but I'll assume some good faith out there on the part of publications like The Atlantic that they do want to publish good work. Hire just one editor who you know is a person of faith, who's practicing, whatever that faith is, just so that there's someone in the room who can raise a red flag on some of this stuff. Again, assuming the point is that you want to publish good things, whether it's having a reporter like Emma Green at the publication to run stuff like this by or an editor who in some position there who is able to look at this before it is published. It would help you a lot if you had that person on your staff. Um, to the extent to which there, this is a real phenomenon, there's a, maybe even some real dangerous people involved. Why shine a spotlight up? On this, right? Um, you know, once again, uh, doing nothing is doing something. It makes me think of another religious principle. So I'm sure they haven't heard of it at the Atlantic uh, in Taoism of Wu Wei. It's the principle of non-action, um, and it's very much an ideal of you know the the ideal ruler practices Wu Wei whenever possible, right? Um, and perhaps the ideal publication as well. Again, to tie it back to questions of of gun violence and and mass shootings. More publications I have seen adopting, I think, the smart decision to not publicize or to in any way boost the image to the front of these conversations, the person who perpetrated them. I I think that tracks very much with the point that you just made about, you know, these very, very marginal online and we're not even sure how serious kinds of things Does this article even need to be written in the first place is a good question to ask. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. Again, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.